Welcome to Fill to Flourish with Luke and Lauren, where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. Hey everyone, we're so glad to have you back on the podcast today. We are talking about betrayal at the hands of faith leaders, and we have a really special guest who we're super pumped to have a conversation with. Um, Ryan Ramsey is a writer, chaplain, and soul care provider who focuses in the areas of religious abuse, advocacy, and grief support. He's published in places such as a, a cast, let's see, how do you say it again? Ecstasis. Ecstasis, Ecstasis. I already knew that and I just couldn't even remember. Such as Ecstasis <laughs> Magazine and Fathom Magazine. You can follow him on social uh, at R. Ramsey Writes. And he's also writes regularly on Substack. So um, yeah, he actually has an article coming out, coming up yes. shortly this month uh, on betrayal. So we are really just feel sobered and also thankful that there's people to communicate and delve into this really dicey, sometimes deeply painful part of our stories. And we just want you to know as you're listening that this is a safe place. And we do think probably a trigger warning is appropriate just because of the topic we're talking about. And um, just to care for yourself, to prioritize that as we, we go into this conversation. So Hey, Ryan, welcome again. Thank you so much. So glad to be with you guys. Oh, we're honored to have you. Yeah, and like Florence said, sobered to have this conversation because it is a, a hard one, but just thankful that you're willing to be that safe person and just with a honest, sober eye, keep, uh, just talk about uh, this topic of that this is real. Because um, I think a lot of kind of gaslighting happens with this topic within the, uh, the church and spiritual places. So we just appreciate your, your availability and honesty just to come in and just affirm and we can learn from and as a whole learn from and just discuss this topic. Yeah. So we appreciate you being here. So we'd love to just start off with more about you. So you're a new new friend, new connection for us and for our audience. And we'd love you to just tell us about yourself, um, about your maybe your, your story as a faith leader and how betrayal intertwines with your journey. Sure. Yeah, these days you can find me in the world of chaplaincy in healthcare, um, as well as providing some soul care and grief support uh, specifically to victims and survivors of some sort of religious or faith-based harm, mm -hmm. rupture, abuse. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of all of that mm -hmm. sort of in two different arenas, but yeah, I ventured into the world of chaplaincy in the last few years. Prior to that, uh, you would have found me in pastoral ministry uh, in uh, church contexts for uh, over a decade. So, you know, a lot of years of ministry and, um, you know, sadly, along with that part of part of my journey, uh, vocationally, career-wise, and, and the journey with my wife, KJ, is that we have lived and experienced abuse in faith settings. And um, for me, I'm, I'm, you know, willing to share that that includes two resignations over years mm. so 
you know, they say, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, right? Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we have seen sort of the dark underbelly of, of some of the betrayal and harm that can happen in faith contexts. And as you guys know, I'm sure, contexts mm-hmm. where you expect and presume there would be belonging, safety, and integrity. And um, I don't, I probably don't have to convince, persuade you guys or your reader, your listeners that that's not always the case. So yeah, Yeah. the things I find myself thinking and writing about and talking about a lot these days are about um, many of the themes that I have experienced and lived personally. Mm. Wow. I just, uh, I just feel physiologically there's a response of just hearing your story and experience of sat like my body response of sadness and grief for you and your and your kj um yeah. and Thank also you. um a sadness for the fact that there is a career that you have gone into to help people that have been hurt by the church um and if we grow up in the church we know like the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. And, and yet we've missed that so significantly. And also selfishly, there's like a, a not aloneness. Like, whew. like if you do experience spiritual betrayal, abuse, hurt, it, it feels very alone in times. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a, a mixture of emotions that go on in me of just sadness for for you and and kj and um just our listeners and also just re-feeling it for myself as well yeah yeah thank you for saying that Hmm. i think so much of like art and expression is like you said i find myself giving from what i'm uh healing from what i've experienced from what from what I'm knowing at a deep level. And I just think the world is so much more beautiful and more hopeful because of people who, who create out of that, that space, whether they write songs or whether they write or whether they, they dance or uh, just all the ways of expression to convey these deep um, gut level truths that are almost beyond it's like there's not enough words to string together to communicate the depth of them and yet we try Mm -hmm. and it's a beautiful act of resistance act of love um just just so thankful every time i see one of your quotes come up on instagram i'm just like oh my gosh like yes and man this guy can write and I'm always like showing it to Luke because he's not an Instagrammer he's like wow so yeah, yeah I'm feeling it too Luke my body is definitely responding to that that little short snippet of your story mm-hmm. that you shared wow mm-hmm. um one yeah, of the things- I, I found I was just gonna say in response if that's okay Part of what writing, and I think this is probably true for a lot of us, right? Whether it's writing or some other art form, writing can be a way of, of, of healing. And, um, and so I think for a lot of us, we write or we express ourselves in some way to revive our voice, right? Mm, Or to, or to 
regain our voice. And that's certainly been true for me. I think something has sort of been revived as I've given myself permission to write about not just my experience, but the experience of so many folks that I find myself walking, walking with and journeying with. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was saying, like expression, different ways of expression. And and I just picture that came in my mind is the expression of sitting with people, like the way you express it, yes, in writing, but also the sitting, um, the making space. Uh, that is also a beautiful expression of of your story and just truth. And like a, a partnering of stories together, which is so <laughs> that co-regulatory effect of being with another that can be with you. There's just nothing quite like it. <clears throat> it's mm, such it's a true. gift to the world. So something you said, I I would love to just um, spend a minute on, you mentioned fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, shame. right? Is that how it goes? Yep. And I, I feel, and I don't know how much of this is my own story, so I'd like to say what I feel from that and then kind of what it means to you of just the, the vulnerability of hope and trust. And then when you, when you like put yourself out there in this very naked, vulnerable way in relationship, again, after seeing how harmful relationship can be, especially in certain contexts, and then it happens again, there's a unique shame that mm-hmm. I have grappled with, have, have been pushed down by because of, of that little slice that you shared. So I would just love to hear what, that, what that's like for you. Yeah, it certainly resonates, right? Because to experience abuse in a church or congregation or organization one time, you know, is like, it's one too many, but it's like enough, it, for most of us, it's enough pain for a lifetime. And so to live that once and then offer yourself into another community, you know, in my case for, um, another job opportunity and, you know, come to find out that it wasn't a safe environment either. It wasn't the same kind of environment, but it was, it was not a safe environment either. You know, there was absolutely shame, I think, especially in the immediate aftermath of resigning and leaving that community, because I'm going, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. How in the world did we not see this, you know? during our interviews, um, when we met people in the community in the beginning, right? You're asking all those questions. And um, there was absolutely a feeling of shame or just almost like, I guess, confusion. Um, It's almost, it almost, sorry, Ryan. Disillusionment, sure. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of disillusionment with yourself because, you kind of walk away saying, I don't know if I can trust myself anymore or as a family, can we trust our own judgment? Like, what is it about us? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So yeah, we absolutely had to grapple with those things. Of course, in time, eventually, I think we sort of found some equilibrium, you know, in dialogue with others where we don't blame ourselves for Mm -hmm. 
choosing to enter into another community and finding out it wasn't safe. There was, there was so much actually that we couldn't know that we couldn't know in interviews. And there was a level yeah. of pretense that prevented us from seeing everything in the beginning. Sure. And so, you know, I think today there's a lot more compassion with ourselves, but yeah. absolutely shame hmm. uh, at first. <clears throat> I, as you're describing that, this reminds me of the episode of toxic loyalty versus healthy commitment. We go into new communities because we've been trained to trust, to forgive, to have hope, to not trust our gut. To others, oh, one other thought that was there. Um, oh, like we used the word, um, we didn't make it, come up with this, but uh, course of conditioning that we have to believe that this next opportunity is good, and that that was unique, because if we don't, then we're judgmental, then we're arrogant, then we're, we're pushed out of the community, we lose community, we lose so much. And so it's not, on this side, I can see like, oh, okay. Yes, there's shame, but like, okay, there's reasons why it wasn't just fool me once, fool me twice, fool me six, seven times. Like, like why, why did, why was I always hopeful? Looking at it from that way, it's like, oh, I had to be. I had, I had, I was trained to. I was told to. I was taught to. I was raised up to be toxically loyal and not even prioritize my experience, my feelings, my hurt. Um, and but to put that aside, and that was a sacrifice for Christ, and it's the suffering that we need to do to be sharpened and to be refined. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's toxic. Um, so that's kind of the thoughts that came up to my mind as you were saying that is, and how sad that happens, and we suffer from the abuse or the shame of, and, and take on ownership of it. Does that resonate for you? It does. It does. Yeah. And as you were kind of saying that, I was thinking, you know, I think another significant ingredient in our story was that when the second, when the second community, the second church and the second job opportunity came around, we were very motivated to find ourselves in a, in a, in a new community and to have stability again in yes. our, in our work. And so our livelihood was a huge factor, a huge ingredient. And so I do think there was a lot of emotion at play in terms of, yes, this could be finally the landing place where we can heal. This yes. can be the community where we're welcomed and we're not, we're not cursed for confronting abuse, like what happened in our first community, you know, mm -hmm. and, and in the interviews, that's the message we got, right? It was like, you're the family, you're the person we need, you're exactly the kind of leader we need, right? So, mm -hmm. man, that spoke, that really pulled on our heartstrings, right? And Absolutely. so those were big ingredients for us too, looking back. Mm. Wow, wow. It, it, it shines a light on so many facets of the different types of vulnerabilities we can come into um, so the person in ministry or volunteer work or missionary work, relief efforts, all of those types of things, they can come in 
with not only having the desire for connection and relationship, which is primal, which is how we're wired, um, the need for attachment, but then the additional layers of, oh, and you also need a livelihood, meaning, purpose, direction, stability, security, like layers, just so right. many freaking layers. Yeah. <sighs> mm-hmm. Okay, so we've already talked about it, but let's see if there's any more <clears throat> on your mind. Some of the elements of faith leader betrayal, what else can this look like um, or some unique aspects of this? Sure. Yeah, I know you guys are familiar with spiritual abuse and um, you talked about it. Um, I think the experience of betrayal in a faith setting and by a faith leader, it, it can be varied, of course, um, mm-hmm. but at its at its core, it's some sort of profound rupture of trust um, in a relationship and often includes a significant violation, right? Um, or mm-hmm. injury. And, yeah. and that, that often includes abuse. Um, as you know, the abuse itself can come in many forms. Right. Spiritual mm-hmm. is a broad sort of um, umbrella term in faith environments, but often underneath that umbrella is psychological, emotional, uh, sometimes physical or sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. So all of those things sort of encapsulate uh, the betrayal. Mm-hmm. It, it, and and maybe this warrants some further dialogue, but the more that I spend time thinking about it and reading and learning, I feel like for a lot of folks, and this rings true for my story, there's a little bit of a distinction between the harm, the abuse, the acts of abuse, the incidents, the events, the memories of injury, which can be devastating by themselves. But then there's the betrayal. And often the betrayal is sort of coincides with the grief. It's this haunting memory and realization that you were uh, functionally discarded or erased or forgotten or neglected by usually not just a, a faith leader who was entrusted with so much authority and responsibility, but but so often, right, it's also the community around that leader. And exactly. there's there's silence. So so much of the trauma and wound of betrayal is that haunting experience of silence or neglect by a community, not just a leader, right? Mm, yes. And that's the isolation is what keeps people, like we talked about in the episode, it keeps people in line, keeps people from mm-hmm. not questioning, not uh, challenging. It's you're just pointing out on the layered aspects of, of this type of abuse. I mean, all abuse is layered. Can you, can you speak to some like specifics of like, like sexual abuse, physical abuse, we can kind of have that picture, but like that, that power dynamic and how it can be used for like psychological and emotional. One of that is what you just talked about is that ostracization or the isolation or the othering, othering mm-hmm. um, in the community. But what are some other ways that it can be so slightly, yeah, insidious and and unseen? Often Um, subtle, right? Right, so subtle. Mm -hmm. That a lot of times we don't even see as abusive, but something doesn't sit with us, but we just go on with our life. That's right. Could you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think um, 
oftentimes in an abusive faith environment, you will find some sort of paradigm often operating. It could be operating in the language or the doctrine, but it, there's often a, an invisible sort of paradigm operating that has to do with power and how power is sort of stewarded and distributed in, in a system. And I would say m- most of the time in an abusive faith setting, faith setting, authority and submission are sort of the name of the, the name of the game, right? Yes. And so you may have, I found this is part of the crazy making confusion, but a lot of times you will find sort of rhetoric about family or community, sort of shared and spoken rhetoric, but in function and in, in practicality and in terms of how power is distributed, uh, often one person, maybe it's a senior leader, has that most, if not all of the power in that system that's usually a very powerful uh, personality. It it could be a very charismatic kind of, you know, stereotypical bully who's sort of holding so much sway in in the system and uses fear and intimidation. And that sort of takes shape and operates in a very sort of of stealth way to your point, right? Um, There can be sort of um, obvious expressions of uh, verbal abuse, yelling, raising voices, that kind of stuff. But so often abuse sort of uh, envelops a system in a very subtle way in that uh, people just come to learn without any spoken agreement. They come to learn that I better not cross these lines. I better not challenge this leader because I know what will happen to me if I do. And so mm-hmm. there's a there's a sort of an unspoken contract of deference, submission, you're not yes. allowed to question or raise concerns or you face, you know, severe consequence. And so to add one more layer in a, in a faith setting, right? Often what you get is not just this sort of invisible power system or structure, but you also get language from scripture. You get yes. language from sacred texts about what it means to be a community or what it means to be a faithful member of that community and Mm. you know again often what you'll find is this really really heavy emphasis on submission to authority and that functions as a a means of silencing dissent Mm. and also a means of um avoiding the possibility of accountability is what i was going to say but yeah control yeah that's perfectly said (laughs) if you can if you can put something that you're saying is higher than you. So say I'm the charismatic bully, but I'm saying, oh, well, our sacred text is, is a, I'm even, a, I'm even accountable to it. It's, it's the ultimate authority. And if you can like set it up and posture it like that, when really you're the one who's above it, because you're the one who is, I'm the one <laughs> who is using it in such a way as to be the authority um, and manipulate it and use it as a tool of coercion, essentially. Mm-hmm. But but like you said, it, it's it's set up that well, it's it's we're all following it, you know. The leaders following it just as much as the people, and it's this almost like twilight zone reality because you don't 
know in your body, like your body knows, like Luke said earlier, something's not quite right. Um, you see it maybe in the fruit of this person's life, but the premise that everyone's already agreed upon, you can't question the premise, is that it's above the leader and we're all following it. And so if he's telling me, oh, it just, it's such a, uh, a recipe uh, for truly control, manipulation and, and domination, like you, mm. you said. It is, yeah. it makes so much sense now that fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, fool me three. Now that all the times have happened, it's like, oh, this makes so much sense now. In the middle of it, and for those of our listeners who are like not there yet, no problem. It can feel as confusing as heck because it does. In the middle, it feels like everything is foggy and is thick and is pressing down on you, suffocating you from being able to breathe um, mm -hmm. because that's how upside down it becomes when you start questioning these strongly crafted systems. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it, 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 it's set up in the hands of unsafe, unhealthy people. It is going to be set up to be absolutely used, not in your favor, but in the system's favor. Yeah, that's right. You might hear things commonly said by a leader or board or group of leaders, right? Something to the effect of, I didn't make the rules. It's in, it's in the, it's in the text. It's in the yeah. scripture, you know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the manipulation is just something, something to behold. But, but part of what we're getting at, as we describe kind of the dynamics is in the aftermath, right? When people are reeling from this kind of harm, the depth of that wound of betrayal, you know, it, it's not just that relationships get ruptured and shattered. Oftentimes it's the whole worldview. It's the whole yeah foundation of a person's faith what they what they have held dear their whole life right it all gets ruptured absolutely and and yeah. what what have you seen to be the impacts of that kind of betrayal and that kind of rupturing on a person's life sure faith, yeah relationships community right. well you know um just in terms of the the trauma yeah, it's not uncommon for for victims or survivors to never be able to step foot in a building again, right, or a congregation, um, because of how triggering that experience is. So there's the physiological and physical impact of I can't step foot into a sanctuary again. Yeah. It's yeah. too painful. It's way too loaded. But then there's there's all of the I think relational and then theological aspects of the betrayal where in some ways if you just think of a massive tornado that rips through a, a community when you experience this kind of thing it's like you're looking around after a, a huge tornado has wiped out your whole world and you're just looking around at debris and a flattened sort of a flattened landscape and mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out where to start you know mm -hmm. um how do I move forward after this? And so it, it's, it's comprehensive in nature, right? Uh, some people walk away from faith entirely. And I, I totally understand that. Um, yeah. 
And for other people, it's really just slowly one piece of debris at a time, picking up the pieces and saying, Hey, what do I do with this? Yeah. I don't even know. I don't even know what to think or believe about this anymore. How yeah. do I think about community again, you know, or gathering? Ryan, I love that you just said that uh, tornado imagery. Yeah. That was great imagery. That was just very, my, my mind instantly created that vision and it resonated. Um, I'm working on this writing project and one of the lines in the beginning is, how do I find true north when the compass is in pieces among the debris? And it just, yeah, it went so well with because this idea of it all coming, tumbling down. Right. And it is so hard to articulate why, if you haven't experienced that, it's so hard to explain how profoundly um, leveling that is, like you said. And disorienting. That, disorienting mm-hmm. that image is helpful because people have seen yeah. footage of mm-hmm. this quaint little town that had all its ducks in a row and everything worked functionally and everything knew who who was what what's the roles what's the expectations how's the system work and then bam the tornado leaves nothing in order in right. functionality it's just destroyed decimated yeah. And so mm-hmm. I think that imagery is probably um, a good takeaway for people listening to this episode that haven't personally experienced this, which is probably not many people, <laughs> um, but just to help understand and have empathy for those who have, because if you haven't had your town leveled, um, you can imagine how hard it would be to rebuild after your town was, was gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think you're touching on a little bit of, aftermath trauma or abuse of when somebody is questioning then after the abuse like ooh, I don't know if I can go back to church I see it posting all the time like people are hurting you uh and you at the church people hurt you it's, it's not about the people you should love Jesus or you put the people ahead of Jesus or yeah it's just like Those are my favorite oh my mm. gosh like you're missing the point um yeah that when you minimize like if, if you if we'd never see a torn a city demolished with a tornado and say well well that's that's not really your reality like you're just pretending like your house was destroyed stop making things up like the house next to you is fine so it must be your house is fine too don't you know how this works that can actually <laughs> happen that doesn't dismiss the fact that my house is destroyed right yeah so the minimizing and the gaslighting, oh man, is so damaging, right? Yeah, um, I've, I've, I've heard the refrain so many times, perhaps from some well-meaning uh, mm-hmm. people of faith, but, you know, they, they sort of look from the outside at someone who's been victimized or crushed and say, well, maybe you need to get back in church, you know, mm. um, that's that's got to be the answer because you're yeah. you've you've isolated yourself and you're just wallowing in your pain and uh, so get yeah. back in church you know yeah. um so many heavy-handed dismissive mm-hmm. messages yeah. that come right and and what does that do for the victim or the survivor it just reinforces yeah. <laughs> that yeah. these are these are people who i can't trust and right. i i don't know how to, i can belong to anymore right yeah 
and I think you again touch on another point of so much of this abuse is done with quote unquote good motives. Uh, but that's why we want to have this conversation is to help people understand one to affirm the people who have experienced this and and help them walk through it. But two, people who haven't to understand like even with the best motives, if you're still responding with dismissing it, telling them to suck it up, using scripture against them, uh, using shame, like this is not loving to also understand the system, uh, the importance of the power that leadership has and that they need to take it seriously and not use it for their own motivation, goals, achievements, ego, and for people to that are in the system to see it and say, hey, I saw that. We need to shift. Uh, we need to do something different. This is harmful. Ooh, I said that to somebody before. I should go apologize to them. I didn't realize what I was saying. Mm. The hope is not to shame and to, we don't want to put shame on the people who bring, are, are hurting people, but we want to bring light into those hurts and and what people and how people are being hurt so that there can be a shift in a new way of doing it and a right way of doing it, a loving way of doing it in an honoring way. Just want to bring humanity, humanity to even the ones that are doing the hurting for the purpose of change. Like we're just calling for change. We're inviting for change. We're inviting for a better way, a new way, a healthier way, a more loving way to interact with people, to prevent abuse, and then to help people recover from those who have been abused. Does that make sense? Am I saying that right? I, I think so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I I wanted to read a quote by this really awesome guy, Ryan Ramsey, um, <laughs> and see what <laughs> this really awesome guy, Ryan Ramsey, thought of his quote. Um, the stories and sorrow of those victimized by religious abuse deserve the church's esteem. Too yes. often they receive indifference or scorn instead. Regardless, the voices of the crushed echo the voice of love, who is moved with swift affection by every lament. Like what a sigh that brings to those who have experienced harm. It is, um, why? Why are these voices met? with indifference, Ryan, yeah. why is there scorn yeah. instead of? Yeah, he said yeah. it so much better than, than I did. He's... You said it great. When you have time to write and <laughs> redraft and erase and edit, <laughs> right? It's the luxury of writing and publishing. Yeah, you were asking why. I mean, I think um, part of it is just to your point about the humanity of people, I guess, is sometimes we just respond in our own anxiety, mm. right? We just respond because we feel uncomfortable about someone else's pain or yeah. their grief, or perhaps if you're a person of faith and you see someone sort of protesting, um, lamenting their, their abuse, you feel like this impulsive, perhaps knee-jerk, well, you know, the whole church isn't all that bad, so... Or you often hear victims are told to move on, right? Yeah. And I do think that often just comes from 
a, a, a someone's someone's own anxiety and inability yes. sadly mm-hmm. to just sit sit with with that pain and lament of a victim yeah um but i also hear victims and survivors say too how do i move on but i think that's coming from a little bit of a, a voice inside them that says you should move mm-hmm. on um why are you still thinking about this all the time right yeah and that's that's often shame, but mm-hmm. from a from a grief lens, I always want to say that moving on is not the goal. I think honoring your pain and your grief is the goal, and yes, inviting people into that experience. You actually maybe maybe you're still feeling this so intensely because other people need to continue to bear witness to what mm-hmm. you've lived, yeah. and honor your story you know Mm -hmm. and and that that rage or that fury or that sense of outrage why that exasperation that angst that's all part of the experience of grief and Mm -hmm. that all is very sacred and that that needs to be honored if you're a victim or you're a survivor i think you may feel it because you haven't been adequately witnessed yet Mm. reminds me of the quote yes Every, every pain on earth um, longs for a benevolent witness. Mm. We have definitely seen that to be true in our own stories of harm and in the stories of harm of those we walk with. And I love that invitation you just gave, Ryan, that there's nothing wrong with you if it mm-hmm. still feels like the days that happened or the days you realized it, or if it still feels as fresh as fresh can be. Um, that's an invitation to, to be, to find some safe places to uh, not navigate that, the immensity of that grief alone, because mm. it's, it's really just, I would say it's, it's almost impossible to carry that level of grief completely alone. Yeah. Every, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was real quick, just going to say, uh, it reminds me of another quote I read yesterday. I'm not going to get yeah. it quite right, but just the idea, the quote was, I, I want, stop feeling like you, stop feeling like the, because you keep on feeling overwhelmed or feeling pain, that means you haven't made progress, but you're making progress because you're feeling overwhelmed in the pain. So like part mm. of grief, like you were saying, the whole process of grieving is feeling the weight of it. If you're feeling it and that shame's coming in and saying, why am I still here? Why am I still feeling this? You're still feeling it because your body's saying you still need to grieve. And that's whole process of feeling the full weight of it in order to move on is your body has to work through those emotions. And so just encouragement that if you feel overwhelmed still, if you still feel those emotions, that's because you're still need to grieve and you're still in process of grieving. And as you move through it, it's not like, it's not, it's going to stop, but it'll be lighter. You won't be overwhelmed by it. You won't be, feel so, so like, I think the tornado was so recent, like the the destruction is still so present. And so, yeah, just the encouragement of that's, that's normal. Exactly. Yeah. You know, healing takes the time that it takes. And oftentimes we put you know, we put sort of timestamps or time limits on our journey. And so, yeah, it's not uncommon. I mean, with any trauma, but 
um, it's not uncommon for victims of betrayal in a faith setting to be looking up a year out, right? A year later and saying, gosh, why am I still mm-hmm. so debilitated and so angry? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, two years out, why am I still so angry? Yeah. And um, again, you know, they often receive messages from someone that says, have you considered that maybe you're, you've become bitter about this? Mm. And those are, those are needless to say, damaging, mm-hmm. dismissive messages re-tra- themselves. Re-traumatizing. That's exactly right. Yeah. But again, I want to go back to, it would be, it would be di- dishonest not to feel angry given what you endured. Yeah. It would be dishonest not to acknowledge that the betrayal you faced tastes so bitter because that's what it is. It's toxic and it tastes bitter and it takes years to get that taste slowly out of your body and as you heal. But yeah, um, I think people, people, um, survivors and victims, I think we all need to do our part to encourage those victims and survivors that giving voice to their pain is part of the journey. And, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you need to be able to do that without filtering your protests. Right. (laughs) Um, This is how we heal. The problem, right. Is there aren't too many people, unless you're a therapist or a safe friend, there's just not enough people who are willing to enter in to that experience with the victim. Absolutely. And, And, as you were talking again, the tornado analogy came up of like a time frame. Like a lot of people who have been hurt have been in the church for decades, and so like mm-hmm. all that you've built up to that point has been destroyed. So it's not going to take six months to rebuild that. It's not going to take six weeks to rebuild that, or to find safety. And so if if you look at it from even that perspective, there can't be a timestamp. Just of it takes time to rebuild things and as different people have different capacity, different resources to rebuild something. And it's going to just be, it's your own story and your own path. Um, and some people might have a counselor to talk to and I say friend and so, some people might be doing it alone or not have the resources. So it's going to take them longer. And so right. just like that comparing, that's also where we can get stuck, whether we're looking from the outside or even looking being the abuser like oh they got over this so much quicker than i did or they seem to be moving on and it's that's tricky from the outside like well did they do the work first of all or what kind of the leveling like we don't we can't see it from the outside so just that compassion for yourself and curiosity in that process um compassion is so important for yourself if you can't receive it from others giving that gift to yourself to mm-hmm. be on your journey Yeah, and I love that Ryan said that earlier when you were just sharing about your story, how, um, or it was a bit after that, just how compassion, you're able to be a lot more compassionate now. Yes. um, Realizing you you didn't do do anything wrong. You you couldn't have known. And um, moving forward now in a, a, with a different posture towards yourself, um, that, that, makes me wonder how else do you think people people can heal uh, what can it look like maybe some things that have been helpful for you or um, yeah what what could this road look like 
uh, rebuilding. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love that question. I would say one of the things I commonly hear from victims of religious abuse and betrayal is something to the effect of, you know, I wouldn't say that my entire faith was destroyed, but I certainly would say that I don't trust institutions anymore. And you often hear that sort of distinction where um, I still, I held on to my faith, but I, I can't trust institutions anymore. And so healing to your question, I think for a lot of people is being given the permission to imagine life and community in ways that may not include a serious investment in an institution again or a church it's being given permission to think okay what would what would it mean for me to invest in community even spiritual community Mm -hmm. um in a non-institutional setting and i think that is huge for a lot of people who say I want to hold on to something here that's still valuable to me about my faith, but I can't do it in the context of an institution again. And so I find myself having those kinds of conversations a lot with people um, and, and being, being willing to discuss and imagine and dream with them about maybe there is a chance and a possibility that you can still experience community um, but it doesn't have to be in those four walls in this, in the context of those four walls again. And so a lot of people just need permission. A lot of people were told growing up, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't, if I leave the institutional church, then I'm no longer, I'm no longer in. That's right. Um, And uh, I don't hold to that view. And um, I, I think especially from a lens of trauma, people need to be given permission without shame to slowly reimagine community apart from an institution. Maybe I'm not saying yeah. that's every, I'm not saying that's everyone, but for a lot of people, um, yeah. that's important. I think another thing related that comes to mind is just um, people feel understandably overwhelmed about the prospect of starting over. I lost my community. I lost this whole group of people who were once like my quote unquote family. And now I don't even know where to begin. And I think first I want to lament and grieve that for a lot of people, like that means, that means they've, their, their relationships have been leveled to zero, you know, Um, for those of us who have friendships, longstanding friendships or community, like it's such a grace and a privilege the reality for so many victims and survivors is relationships get leveled to zero. And so starting over, literally starting over is so overwhelming. And, um, and yet I think there is an invitation uh, and it's, it's an invitation to courage um, to invite people one relationship at a time or mm-hmm. one friendship at a time to let yourself experience being known again. And that may begin with a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. But it may begin with one one new friendship that has the opportunity or chance to blossom into something beautiful and safe. I, I, I want to invite people to think on those small scale terms, especially victims, because it's too overwhelming to think about jumping into a new church or 
a large community where you're the, the, you know, the new person in the group, that's often too much to start with. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, small scale invitations to pursue relationships again, even that I fully acknowledge is a source of grief because right there, there are so many victims. And I just talked to one this week who were like, <laughs> I just can't do it right now. I, I tried to make a new friend and it didn't work up. It didn't work out. And I'm just mm-hmm. so exhausted by the vulnerability yep. of starting over. And wow. I do want to honor that grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so I'll pause there. I've got some other ideas too, as far as healing, but I did want to <laughs> at least mention the whole idea of community. I just love what you just offered. Um, and I just hear your heart and your compassion for, for and love for people it, and how, how safe you are, what a safe person you are and why, why you're doing the work you're doing. And uh, so thankful for you. That, that permission, that invitation, that compassion, that lack of urgency. Yeah. If you're just like joining in with them, just walking with them. It's just beautiful. I, I, yeah, it is. So thank you for sharing that. It, it spoke, it was encouraging and even spoken, spoke to me. And I know it also to our listeners. I don't know if we have time for uh you said you had more um love to hear more do you have anything you want to say hon no i echo what you say it's super Mm -hmm. clear that you're trauma-informed and that you're using that lens to know how to proceed wisely and i think so that's so much of what's missing in this conversation is people may have the heart to help but they don't understand trauma they don't understand its effects and how it physiologically works in the body. And therefore they say things like, well, just get back in, just jump back in. You need people. Get back on that bike. Um, It's like the second wound. I really like that expression of, you know, the first wound of initial abuse is beyond devastating. And then the second wound can sometimes even be worse when you don't, you can't find safety. You can't Mm -hmm. find restoration. You cannot find repair. So I guess I did have something to say, but now I'm going to stop because <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> I want to hear, thanks, your few other thoughts on healing. Yeah, um, a lot of survivors find real community and encouragement online. And, you know, for all of the ills of social media, there is a very robust survivor and victim community on social media and people yes. have been profoundly encouraged by that space and so you know you can find that on instagram twitter wherever people are um they're there and i have found a real synergy and life to that community because there's this sense of togetherness you know albeit limit albeit limited because this is digital life but um it can turn into real life uh opportunities and um, you know, embodied community. And I've seen that happen over and over and over again, where people connect online first. So that's a beautiful, rich space, I think, for, for, for victims. Of course, you have to kind of, you have to kind of curate your experience so that you're not re-traumatized on social media, so that you're not absorbing too much, that kind of thing. But I wanted to mention that. And then this is a little bit more 
maybe ambitious, but my wife, KJ and I are becoming more and more impassioned about the idea of grief ritual. Mm-hmm. And this would probably be a whole nother podcast, so I won't go into too much, but <laughs> okay. um, uh, I think there's beautiful opportunities to hold space, um, even in a very small group in the form of grief rituals, gatherings to sort of make what you've lived, make your story, honor it with some sacred space, give it some symbol, give it some um, elements, whether it's a bonfire or a hike outside or something around water and um, imagine various ways to experience ritual. And I, I, uh, I'm really captured by that these yeah. days. And um, I think there's a beautiful opportunity for survivors to experience more healing through grief ritual. That's really cool. I, I like that. And I've actually become more curious about that recently. So maybe we will have you on again to, for that podcast. Cause I, I have a lot to learn about the about grief rituals and uh, seeing the significance of them and the importance mm-hmm. of them as we walk through grief and grieve, celebrate, celebrate the grief by just giving it the uh, the attention it deserves, but also moving forward and celebrating. So yes. I'm just very how, interested in that. How disconnected Western culture is from from anything ancient and grounding in that way. We just, yeah. we, we don't have access to it. Um, and exactly. so I think the closest we get to that is a, is a really meaningful conversation about it as that little moment and bubble in time of honoring that. But how neat would it be to, to bring, like you said, uh, more symbolism and more tangible uh, mm-hmm into that process as you're being witnessed as you're being held as you're grieving together I mean it sounds it yeah. sounds like um <laughs> it sounds amazing I was gonna yeah. say like one of those psychedelic experiences that people um Describe. are experimenting with yeah. I I didn't want people to assume that I was doing that but I have I have read <laughs> some about it <laughs> yeah yeah part of the irony of us even sort of talking this way right now is that the idea of grief ritual is as ancient as humanity itself. You kind of just mentioned that, right? So like the, the, the indigenous tribe or village would be listening in on our conversation going, of course, of (laughs) course you do grief ritual. We've been doing this for generations, right? This is how we grieve. This is how we heal as a community and Westerners in particular, we just don't have a category for it. You know, I was listening to a talk by, I don't know if you know him, Gabor Mate. Have you ever heard of him? Heard of him. Okay. I was watching Super a talk cool on him. Guy. Yeah. Um, and he was actually talking to, I can't remember where, but it was an indigenous people group. And that's it's what he was saying. It's like, they, they have specific things for different grieves, like how to rituals that they do and how to grieve and they do it as a community. And they, and it's just, um, just talk about the importance of it as as people mm-hmm. and and how we have lost that a lot of us westerners have lost that we have that significance of of grieving as a community and doing different rituals and stuff i love and that you threw so, that into that word it, it it makes like oh wow 
Ryan's so mysterious. What what's he talking <laughs> about? I love when there's like these other layers to people that maybe are unexpected or um it's like reading a good book and finding out, oh, grief rituals. What is yeah, this? Totally. Stay, totally. stay tuned. KJ and I are totally novices in this area mm-hmm. ourselves. And we're actually experimenting. We're going to try and facilitate our first little grief ritual this fall with a group of people that will include some beautiful hiking and Aspen season. And so oh, wow. we're excited about cool. it. <clears throat> oh, that's awesome. We're running out of time. Ryan, thank you so much for your 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 time for coming here again and all of just the beautiful love, compassion, insight, um, sharing your experience, sharing invitations. I know it was a it was a blessing to me. I'm sure it was a blessing to our listeners as whether it's spiritual grief or abuse or other abuse, like grief. It all needs to be grieved, grieved, all needs to be witnessed. Um, but we're just talking today specifically about the spiritual abuse, uh, religious abuse and betrayals. And so, but thank you for bringing your, your insight, your professional, your professional knowledge and experience. Uh, and we're just so honored to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. It's oh. been beautiful to be with you guys. And I'm grateful for the work you guys are doing too and the way that you guys are holding space and Mm -hmm. educating and i'm honored to continue to champion the beautiful work you're doing appreciate that and if you want to find ryan just a reminder he's on social at r ramsey writes um and yeah connect with his stuff there because it will be uh, a powerful encouragement to you i'm i'm certain Absolutely. So thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next episode. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.